The interview you're about to hear was originally published on the Superhumanize podcast. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. Dr. Yehuda, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast, and thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for asking me. So currently, there's a lot of interest in psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy with substances like MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, and others. I think it's important to acknowledge that this is actually not a new thing, but psychotherapists were already experimenting with this in the 1950s until the research was shut down in the 70s by the government. And back then, the sentiment was both in the scientific community and also the general population that these substances were bad, there was no benefits to be derived from them. And I would like to know, in your opinion, what prompted the revival of the interest in these therapies and what changed around the perception of them? Yeah, it's my speculation, obviously. But the way I understood the story isn't that that therapists and scientists thought that psychedelics were bad. I think that there were some adverse events and you can't, there were some adverse events that were just undeniable. And I think the rampant use of psychedelics made people a little nervous. Now, I think therapists knew how to use psychedelics responsibly and were very interested in doing it to open people up. But there were not really randomized controlled clinical trials that could support an indication. And so when these substances got banned because they were considered dangerous when used irresponsibly, an argument couldn't really be made to allow therapeutic use, even though there were a lot of ad hoc stories and a lot of people that had been using these substances to really good effects in their clinical practice due to the lack of evidence-based science and randomized clinical controlled trials. So why are people now interested in this? Randomized clinical controlled trials have been done recently and they have shown really great promise of great efficacy in indications like post-traumatic stress disorder and treatment-resistant depression. And so people are paying attention now. And so I think this is a really good thing. Yes, absolutely. And uh, one of the things you focus on is the treatment of PTSD with MDMA. This is the psychoactive drug that's also sometimes known as ecstasy. Can you give our listeners a brief overview on what MDMA is and its backstory, please. MDMA is a compound that was first synthesized in 19... Something happened with the sound. MDMA is a compound that was first synthesized in 1912 by Merck. It wasn't clear what the compound would be used for, but its psychoactive properties were discovered pretty soon after it was synthesized. And there was a lot of research in the 1950s about different kinds of psychedelics, including MDMA. Uh, 
MDMA was actually banned later than other compounds in the 1980s. But I'm sorry, I lost the question. Oh, I apologize. Not a, not a problem at all. <laughs> That'll have to be edited out. Can you start again? Of course. I apologize. Um, not yeah. a problem. So one yeah. of the things you, uh, that's a focus of yours is the treatment of PTSD with MDMA, the psychoactive drug that's also known as ecstasy. And I would love for you to give our listeners a brief overview of what MDMA is and also the backstory. MDMA is a drug that was first synthesized in 1912. It wasn't being made as a psychedelic, and its psychedelic properties were discovered only later on. And it was studied in the 1950s and 1960s when people were interested in drugs like LSD and psilocybin, and therapists began using it, I'm not exactly sure when, in the 60s and maybe 70s, They started using this as a way to open patients up, as a way to get patients to confront difficult material. It was used, I believe, in marital therapy. But then MDMA was banned in the early 1980s because there was a ban on other psychedelic drugs as well. Though recently, there has been a resurgence of interest in MDMA because of MAPS. That's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelics studies that began investigating MDMA for PTSD. I think they they began it in 1986, but until they got permission to proceed from the FDA with clinical trials, it took a little while. But starting from about 2006, I believe, data from phase two studies started emerging showing that MDMA-assisted psychotherapy was very helpful for patients with PTSD. And as these studies came out, I was very intrigued by them. First, suspicious, as scientists tend to be, of really good outcomes. But eventually, I really thought that it was important to give these compounds a try in patients with PTSD. So our intention is to conduct clinical trials using MDMA-assisted psychotherapy We're going to start out doing this in combat veterans, but we haven't started yet. So we've just been in the stage of training therapists and designing protocols and going through the different levels of approval. But we're very excited to begin doing this research. Yes, I think we're living in such exciting times where we actually are opening up to collectively and also policy-wise to bring in the potential benefits of substances like MDMA. What are the pharmacologic effects of MDMA and how can it help a patient heal? I can tell you what the pharmacologic effects of MDMA are, but I'm not sure that those will tell you how the patient heals. And I think that there lies a very big mystery. The compound of MDMA is like an amphetamine molecule with a methylene deoxy group attached to it. And it's a compound that also looks quite similar to other serotonin releasing drugs. And indeed, MDMA does release serotonin. It releases other neurotransmitters like dopamine and norepinephrine. It results in the release of hormones like prolactin, cortisol, and oxytocin. I'm not sure that 
having the surge of hormones and neurochemicals is what actually results in the therapeutic effects. Because what's really going on here is that the MDMA is creating a state that is conducive to doing work, psychotherapeutic work. And it is that psychotherapeutic work that is what I think brings about the positive outcomes in patients. So it's a very big mystery in our field that needs to be pursued because we're not talking about popping a magic pill here and having everything be okay. We're talking about how to facilitate a process, Mm. how to facilitate a healing process. And for trauma survivors, this is particularly important because it's actually very difficult to confront memories of traumatic experiences. It's hard to talk about them, but it's also hard to think about them. It's hard to just confront them. And one of the hallmark symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is, of course, the avoidance of traumatic materials. So even under the best intentions of a patient and a therapist to really talk about the trauma and to confront painful memories and try to get at the bottom of them, a lot of times patients just become very distressed by doing this. And so one of the things that MDMA does, certainly in theory and also in practice, according to the data that have been published, is that it helps people feel more open, more compassionate towards themselves, more prone to introspection, more ready to engage in a trusting relationship with a therapist, a little less afraid. And all of those qualities are really very conducive to healing, to talking about trauma, to confronting things that are normally painful. And so all of that makes a lot of sense. We have to continue to do clinical trials, particularly in very vulnerable populations, to really see who should, who benefits the most, who might benefit the least. There are a lot of questions that we still have to ask about the efficacy of MDMA, but the results so far are as promising as any results have been in the field of trauma. So someone like me who's been working in the field of trauma for a long time can't really ignore this. Yes, and you shouldn't really ignore this. (laughs) And you've been in the field for 30 years now, right? Yeah. Yes. At least. Yep. And how does the treatment via MDMA-assisted psychotherapy look like? And how does that work? If you can walk us through the process. And also, why is it important that we make a distinction between that and the recreational use of MDMA? I've told you all I know about why MDMA might work. And again, One of the reasons that we're so interested in studying MDMA is to be able to explore more carefully the mechanisms through which recovery is achieved when you are in a transpersonal state and working under conditions of therapy. We don't have the answer to this. We have some hypotheses. We have some clues. But this is going to be something that is going to unfold as science marches on and interest in this area increases. Understood. And from the experiences that you 
know of or that you yourself may have had, uh, are there any insights regarding the effectiveness and also how long the effects last with individuals that have undergone a treatment like this? According to the phase two trial of MAPS, the effects are not only enduring for most people, but people continue to make gains. And that is something that actually makes sense to me because in a normal mental health treatment model, one of the functions of a medicine is to suppress symptoms, just keep them from coming to the surface. So an antidepressant is designed to suppress depression. Medication that helps you sleep suppresses the insomnia. But the idea behind giving patients psychiatric medicines is usually to suppress a process and this will and these processes will be suppressed so long as somebody takes the medication but here there's a very different model the model here is more of a recalibration more of a one shot or a, a acute administration that will then allow somebody to have a transformational change that will no longer require a strategy of suppressing symptoms because you get to the bottom of why the symptoms are there to begin with. And this is really very revolutionary if it works. Yes, it sounds like... Change the way that we, yeah, can change the way that we really think about therapy. It is often said, I think the psychologist Stanislav Grofer said that psychedelics are to psychiatry what the telescope is to astronomy and the microscope is to biology. And I really that saying a lot because I think that once you see something, so to speak, in psychotherapy, that's it. You can work with it. You don't need to keep looking in the microscope and the telescope to make the insight doesn't go away once you see something. And then you can continue to work with it And so I really like the model a lot because to me, it's very consistent with how people do make transformative change. They actually get an insight. They actually see something in a very different way than they've seen it before. They get unstuck from their narrative. And with trauma survivors, they do get a little stuck in a narrative. I was incompetent and that's why I couldn't survive or the world is unsafe or things will never be safe again. These are narratives. I'm to blame for what happened. And the more they think about the event, the more they talk about the event, the more stuck they get in this belief. Now, cognitive behavioral approaches will say that we can deal with that if you keep repeating the story, or if you can somehow have an altered cognition, for lack of a better word, an altered way of looking at what happened to you. The pro- and that really does sound good in theory, but the problem is that many patients just get too distressed by the process of confronting details of their narrative, so they can't really get to the other side of a cognitive behavioral approach. Mm-hmm. But the idea is really the same. The idea is to try to see something in a different way so you can go about your life in a different way and you can change things in a different way. Yes, I love the analogy you just shared. It's beautiful and it really makes so much sense. And I think it also, it could signify a paradigm change in how we culturally approach 
illness, suffering, instead of suppressing symptoms to actually look at it in a different way, to actually go to the root cause or at least allow for these things to to change, to transmute, to dissolve. And what you just said about the narrative and that people get stuck in the narratives of their trauma of their experiences. I have read, correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that past effects and trauma can not only transform the narrative of a person's life, but also their biology. How does trauma affect us? What happens inside of our body? That's a really good question. And I would have answered it differently a few years ago than I would answer it today. Uh, My laboratory has been studying the biologic basis of PTSD for really decades. And other investigators have also been very focused on trying to uncover how the bodies and brains of people with trauma and PTSD might be different from those that either haven't experienced trauma or have experienced it, but haven't developed PTSD. And there is now quite a convincing literature that documents many changes in the brain and many changes in hormones and neurochemistry and immune markers and things like that. But at the end of the day, reversing those changes don't necessarily make someone better. And so one wonders whether the biology of trauma and PTSD are really the biology of something pathological or whether they're the body's attempts to cope and adapt, in which case you might not want to reverse those things per se, but you might want to understand a little bit better why they're there. And a metaphor that I like to use for that is when your body gets an infection, you have an increase in white blood cells. That's documented fact. Now, those white blood cells are there to help you fight the infection. You need them. So the really worst thing that you could probably do is decide that those white blood cells, because they're there following an infection, are the things that we should kill off because they're associated with infection. So I think we need a little humility. I've um, evolved in my thinking quite a lot from my initial days when I saw PTSD as really a manifestation of the body not mounting a good response to trauma or the body kind of letting down someone really and not allowing a normal recovery process. But I'm not sure that's true anymore. I think that trauma and especially repeated trauma really affect the body and the body responds, but that not all the body's responses are necessarily bad things. Some might be attempts to cope Some might be attempts to achieve resilience. Some may be mediating between bad outcomes and much worse outcomes. So what we do know about the effects of trauma is that they're systemic. They're not only about how you think and changes in the brain. Trauma and stress hormones actually affect all logic systems in the body. And really, traumatic stress can influence physiology and not just behavior, and not just thinking, and not just psychological symptoms. So really, trauma is an overwhelming thing to metabolize. And it's just not possible or reasonable to think that every effect of trauma is a negative effect per se. And part of what I like about the psychedelic psychotherapy is that it emphasizes making space for the trauma 
trying to integrate it, trying to accept it as part of something that has happened to you. I've been doing research for a long time, and maybe as early as 15, 20 years ago, someone had the bright idea that if you could make people amnestic, if you could give them a pill right after they're exposed to a trauma and somehow make them forget what happened to them, that this would be a cure or a prevention for PTSD. And at the time, I actually thought that was ridiculous and unsafe, even though I couldn't quite conceptualize why. (laughs) But the reason is that you don't want to stop a stress response from occurring. You may want to stop a trauma from occurring if you possibly can. (laughs) That would be a good thing if we could prevent trauma. But if trauma is going to happen, we want to have a stress response, certainly an acute stress response. And then we want to do what we can do to help the body naturally heal. So this idea that trauma is never going to happen to people is a fiction. Trauma is going to probably happen to everyone at some point. And what's most helpful is to try to develop a way of living with trauma, healing from trauma, learning from trauma, growing from trauma, avoiding it if you can. Mm -hmm. But when you can't, not falling apart because you think that it shouldn't have happened. And part of trauma does have to do with cognition, how you think about an event, how you look at what happened to you. And if you enter trauma with the mindset of trauma shouldn't happen to me, it's going to be even more devastating when it does. If you enter trauma with things like this happen, I am strong. They happen and the body is built to deal with it. And I will rely on my own self and my community and other people who have similarly been traumatized to pull through this. I think that is a more natural and adaptive response. And even if you have physiologic change, you can somehow deal with it better if you know that this is a normal function of healing. When you fall and you scrape your arm, this happened to me recently, it looks not so bad the day you scrape it, and then it looks very bad as the scar is forming. But that formation of the scar is actually on the road to complete healing of the arm. So that is how we have to think about these changes. We have to understand them, make space for them, welcome them to the extent possible, and not fight or resist them. And I think part of the psychedelic experience, assisted by psychotherapists who know what they're doing, is to help with that process, is very organic people emerge from these experiences also feeling that they have more of a place in the world where maybe beforehand a trauma survivor feels very alienated from the world, from other people, from themselves even. And there's something about making space and knowing that you have a place and that your trauma has a place and that you're not the only one that has a trauma. And I think that this can be enormously healing and all it is really is a profound reconceptualization, but I think that maybe that's what is required. That's why I de-emphasize the whole pharmacology of the drug, even though I think it's important to understand it. I think it's going to only take us so far, and that's why I like to overemphasize the psychotherapy part, because just taking a psychedelic 
without kind of the intention or the ability to process what comes up may not have the same kind of a healing effect. Yes, and also to have the therapeutic guidance, the guidance of, of somebody who's experienced with this and can help integrate the experience after, afterwards. I think, that's partic I think that's really particularly important to emphasize for more vulnerable patients. There are a lot of people that, are, that say, oh, psychedelics have helped me so much. And obviously, their use might have been underground or may not have been with the help of a therapist. And I think that those people may or may not have been very vulnerable to begin with. But for vulnerable people, we really want to make sure that we do this work in a very safe manner so that everybody can feel very contained and held and that the before work and the after work are really present for people so that they don't feel like they're just abruptly left alone to deal with something and that this can be a very important process that's in the middle of a therapeutic experience or towards the end of a therapeutic experience, but that when a lot of change is possible, I think some patients will really need to talk about it more than others. So that's just something that we really want to keep in mind. And many trauma survivors have been suffering for years or decades, and they are more vulnerable. Many trauma survivors have contemplated suicide or have developed other conditions, mental health conditions or substance abuse conditions and things like that. So I think that all of those things are really worth thinking about in the field. Absolutely. And like you already emphasized before, this is not about popping a pill or popping a substance. It's a journey of healing and that you do under very safe and supervised conditions in order to bring the best effect and benefit for the patient. Something I really, and I love the way you also reframe this for us, that the reactions to trauma are not Bad, like you, uh, the way you likened it to the white blood cell reaction in the body, that these things are actually potentially vital and good for us. They can really be inconvenient. They can be challenging. They can be a mismatch for what's happening in the environment. And I don't want to put rose-colored glasses on and minimize how difficult it is for so many people that have PTSD. But I'm just saying that the biologic changes that they are experiencing in their body may actually be trying to help them cope. They, like white blood cells help us cope with an infection. I'm not saying that it's great to have the infection. It's very difficult to have the infection. Some infections are can actually kill you. Mm. And I think that some traumatic experiences have that potential as well. So not at all minimizing how debilitating a traumatic experience could be. But once it occurs, you can't negate it. You have to deal with it. Once it happened, if you don't deal with it, it's not going to make things better. There's There has to be a way that you go there, however scary that is. And if you can do so under conditions that are the most benign possible, then you might actually be able to make some, pro some progress. And that's really the hope of these psychedelic psychotherapies. But again, 
Our field needs a lot of experience. Right now, that experience comes through research. I'm very excited to do the kind of studies that will help us understand more about how these treatments may be affecting biology, may be affecting biologic processes associated with resilience. I think psychedelics have the capacity to inform us about resilience in general, whether it be in a psychiatric condition or in response to trauma or in just regular people that are enormously helped when they do have a psychedelic experience. Hmm. Something while when I did the research on your work, Dr. Yehuda, that really interested me was the, for example, a study you published in 2016, where you looked at the genes of 32 Jewish women and men, and you and your colleagues studied these Holocaust survivors who had experienced terrible things. And you also looked at the genes of 22 of the children who were born to these survivors after the war. And there's something that's called the intergenerational trauma link and intergenerational transmission. Could yeah. you go into that for us a little bit? Because I think that's an absolutely fascinating new knowledge that, that's been coming up in the recent past. Sure. Intergenerational trauma refers to this idea that the children of people who have been exposed to trauma feel affected by that trauma. And it's been around for, I think, since the 1960s. It was first described by a child of Holocaust survivors. And it went through a period where people felt enormously validated by the term and people felt stigmatized by the idea. And I think it wasn't until maybe the 1990s we began doing biologic work in the area. We could very much understand why a child of a Holocaust survivor, for example, would feel affected by the Holocaust. What we couldn't really figure out was what is the mechanism for this? Is it because of the parenting Is it because of the horror stories of the Holocaust and just the imagining of parents having to undergo those experiences? Was it a fear that if it could happen to your parents, it can also happen in this generation? Uh, was it a result of a genetic predisposition to PTSD that may be the same vulnerabilities that uh, gave rise to psychological problems in parents may be repeating themselves We didn't really know what was happening. And then as the concept of epigenetics started to be more prevalent in neuroscience, we wanted to apply it to this question because epigenetics is the study of how genes are regulated. And one of the features of epigenetic marks is that they are potentially heritable. And so we did do a study that we published in 2016. It was a small study, but we have recently replicated it in a much larger sample that came out this year in the American Journal of Psychiatry, where we show epigenetic changes on a stress-related gene in Holocaust offspring compared to Jewish children of American parents who were living at the same time and didn't and were not exposed to the Holocaust. Again, There are all sorts of questions that arise about interpreting these findings, what they actually mean. They don't necessarily mean that children are, adult children are adversely affected. 
some of the epigenetic changes that we see might actually be associated with resilience. So again, it's pretty complicated. There's no denying though, that an ex uh, such a cataclysmic experience in a parent might affect a child. And I think what this research does is it makes us really understand that we're more than just our own experiences. We basically carry around a lot of legacy, a lot of lessons from the past, from previous generations, from certainly the generation of our parents. And interestingly, many people who do psychedelics really think about trauma, traumatic experiences that have occurred in prior generations. This is a very common thing that you hear people visiting experiences that happen to parents and grandparents or really hearing kind of an ancestral voice of guidance. And when you think about an epigenetic change, it's nature's way of allowing a lesson that you've learned from trauma to not be lost, <laughs> to not be lost in the cell. And as the cell divides, maintaining that lesson. And from a sociobiology evolutionary perspective, that's what you want. You want to constantly be learning from the environment and making a better version of you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what you have is not a perfect match for the environment you live on in. And so that can be a problem. But the actual idea of really carrying something and having something as a result of something that happened to your parents, I think of it as a gift you got from your parents. As we all know, not all gifts are exactly what we want or need at the time. <laughs> but it is a way of preserving history. There, there's a biologic way of making sure that something isn't forgotten. And what that does is it challenges notions like, oh, let's forget about the trauma. Because maybe that isn't the right thing at all. Maybe the idea is to carry a memory, but also contextualize it and not let it overrun everything else. Yes, that is really profound. And for a person such as myself, who is also very spiritually inclined, aside from being scientifically interested, I find what you just said about how this is basically the inheritance from our ancestors. And you shared how patients would have these experiences with their ancestors in a spiritual or mind way. I don't know how they would have experienced it. But for me, it's fascinating how things that have been shared via religion, spirituality, ancestral heritage, how science and this type of spiritual experience now seem to intersect. Yeah, and so it's opening up a conversation. Um, again, when I spoke about the biologic effects of intergenerational trauma, people didn't really pay that much attention to this work. It's been ongoing since 1998. We've really done a lot of work in this space. It wasn't until we started talking about epigenetic marks on the DNA where people started to take notice because there's something about really being able to influence the way genes function, to have that really maybe potentially pass through the germline or maybe happen as a result of an in utero exposure that gets people thinking, taking it more seriously. We should be taking parenting effects just as seriously if you can change if you can confer epigenetic changes as a result of your parenting, that should scare all of us who are parents <laughs> because 
we have to understand that they're that what we do really matters and can really affect people and our environments matter. And I think it increases a sense of mindfulness that really we are important, what we do matters, we are powerful. I think that it's the opposite message of trauma and we're doomed and we're victims. I think it's such actually an empowering message of making positive changes may change us positively and also for generations. Mm-hmm. Learning from adversity also may enhance resilience and may give our future generations tools of dealing with something that perhaps we didn't deal with as effectively as we could have because we were not as prepared as our children are going to be. So again, a lot of trauma is how you think about it. A lot of it is really really based on whether you can make a pivot, whether you have the cognitive flexibility to make a pivot and try to see some sort of a silver lining or an opportunity for growth. But I want to say that being so respectful of how hard that is. Uh, I've seen people really suffer for decades and trying to make that pivot. But sometimes our environment isn't healthy enough to help us make that pivot. A lot of people struggle with the effects of trauma while their lives are full with ongoing trauma. So it's hard to heal from a past trauma when you're suffering in the here and now from current adversity. So that's why healing environments are so very important when we talk about trauma and trauma treatments. The environment in which you do your healing can be very important. Yes. There is something that came to my mind right now, listening to you. You had an early interest in philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. Prior to becoming a scientist. And if I am correctly informed, uh, do you think that has informed also your work as a scientist? It's hard to know what doesn't inform your work as a scientist. It's hard to really break that down. The reason scientists make unique contributions is because they've had unique inputs into their lives and you never know when you're going to, where you're going to get your inspiration. I think initially I was drawn to philosophy because I was curious and philosophy seemed to be the kind of thing that answers questions like what is the purpose of life and why are we here and just how did the world get here and all these kinds of big questions. And yeah, as I started reading philosophy, there's some of that, of course. A lot of philosophy was linguistic. A lot of philosophy was very pedantic parsing of the question without actually answering the question. (laughs) And early on, found that maybe science was more my thing. So I knew in high school that I wanted to be a scientist or that I was gravitating towards science. And yeah, I think there's a lot of philosophy in science. As there becomes more science and philosophy, I think it gets a little reductionistic, but I'm not in the field, so I really have no reason or bearing to to criticize it. But yeah, early on, reading how people thought about the world, how the origins of the world, cosmology, teleology, all those things were really very interesting to me, how people knew if they existed and take heart. I really, I soaked it all up 
because it felt really important to me that there were people out there that were thinking about these things and asking these questions. Mm. And aside from your work with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, you're also looking into treatments with compounds of psilocybin, right? Yeah, we're very excited that we will probably be doing a psilocybin study in the near future. We're very interested to see how it works for PTSD. It's quite a different experience than MDMA. And again, it shows such good potential for treatment-resistant depression, which is another one of those syndromes that just really are intransigent and frustrating for people because they try so many therapies and sometimes fail. And so the idea of applying it to PTSD is very interesting, is very um, exciting. Yeah, and there are companies right now focused on psilocybin that currently have over a billion dollar market cap, there's a Pathways, there's a MindMed. And a lot of this is getting traction, I think also because the, the patent protection surrounding a lot of these antidepressants is expiring. Would you be willing to make a prediction of what the landscape with research, also legal landscape, may look like within the next few years? And as a professional with hands-on experience, what would be your desired outcome? The space is growing. And I think in general, that's a good thing. People are excited about psychedelics and that's a good thing. What I hope will happen though, is that in the service of the agenda to create more compounds and make them legal and available, that we don't forget about the importance of science, the importance of really trying to study things. In particular, this is going to be important to the community of mainstream medicine and psychiatry, which we're really going to rely on to help promote these treatments. I was skeptical at first about psychedelics. The idea of it seemed very strange to me. I had never taken psychedelics. I, that's not unusual for people like me. And I just thought it's some sort of a of an experience that won't last. It's not tangible. It was the science ultimately and the possible mechanisms of actions that kind of brought me along. The science of the clinical trials, uh, my own training to be a psychedelic psychotherapist through MAPS, the seeing it work in the videotapes and in the training material, talking to people who have gotten better from psychedelics, getting my own experience in an FDA-approved protocol, those were all really important ways of learning for me about psychedelics. So again, we have to create knowledge as we create compounds. We have to have the questions answered about what are the basic mechanisms? How are these drugs really working? How do they work without psychotherapy compared to how they work with psychotherapy? I think these are all really critical questions. What are the brain changes and how long do they last? How do people begin to see the world differently? Do psychedelics actually reverse pathophysiology of illnesses or do they recreate new neural networks of resilience? 
really there are a lot of questions. For the neuroscientist, there is an opportunity to create new paradigms and not just be stuck in neurochemistry or in gene expression, but to really look far beyond this to examine mechanisms of synaptic plasticity. Do neurons change? Do their dendrites grow? Do, you know, are there changes in their axons? What really happens in terms of the neuronal architecture? And we have so many tools now to be able to examine these questions. So it seems like a really important thing to do. So clinical trials are important. Science is important. Discovery is important. All of those things are important. But I think I am a little more conservative than many people in the space right now. And I think it's good there should be a spectrum of people. But I want to see the science, and I want the science to be bulletproof. I want it to be able to withstand scrutiny, and I want it to be able to explain things that we need to explain. And where we're not looking right now is individual differences. It would be a mistake to channel that psychedelics are for everyone. That can't possibly be true, but who's creating the, the profile for who shouldn't be taking psychedelics? How frequently can psychedelics be safely used? We don't really know the answer to that. If you have one course, three sessions over a three-month period, when should you do it again, if ever? We don't know a lot about therapists. Should, can therapists who have never had a psychedelic experience be good therapists for somebody else having a psychedelic experience? Has to be asked and answered. Does it, I could go on and on. There's, there, these are just things that people have no problem just talking about and speculating about. When people do ayahuasca ceremonies, are the effects different than when they don't do it in a ceremony, if they just would take it minus the shaman? And the same is true of other kinds of healing rituals. For example, ketamine done in a ketamine clinic might have very different effects than ketamine done in the context of a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. I think that, but I don't think anyone's done the study to prove that. So if you take patients and randomize them to receive ketamine only or ketamine plus psychotherapy and look at the next, the amount of time it takes until their next ketamine, until they want the ketamine again, will it be longer? Will it be a longer interval for somebody with the psychotherapy or not? So there is no end to the questions we can and should be asking. And that is what I would like academic medicine and academic psychology to be embracing this. And I would like companies as they're developing compounds to set aside some of their investment portfolio for research, for doing not just the research that will help them get through the FDA, but the research that will increase our knowledge about how to optimally use these compounds and for whom, and whether special populations require using these compounds in a different way or different algorithms. So I think there's so much to be done. And that's why I'm here. That's why we started the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research at Mount Sinai. And that's what I'm excited about doing. So that's what I'm excited about 
uh, spending my time doing for the next few years. Yes, from an outsider's perspective, my perspective, just having followed development for a few years and having found you and your work, I am so glad you're doing what you're doing. I think it's could be transformational for individuals and also the collective. And there's something you just mentioned. There's so many important and intriguing questions that need to get answered, amongst them is this for everyone? And also, should therapists have had experience with the substances that they're actually using, for, that the patients are using? And you mentioned this FDA-approved protocol. I think that was a protocol that allowed you to experience being a patient taking MDMA under therapeutic conditions with therapists. How was that experience and what was your takeaway from it? The experience was really very life-altering for me. But I think it was a combination of the psychedelic and the psychotherapy. I was in a study. So on one day I got placebo and on one day I got MDMA. And yes, I could tell the difference. But on the placebo day, the eight hours of psychotherapy was extraordinarily valuable. And one of the things that it made me wonder about is whether our model of psychotherapy of coming of returning to a therapist week weekly or biweekly for 50 minutes is really the right model of healing because there's something so powerful about spending a long period of time trying to really process something and get at something so it, my experience really for me showed me the power of the psychotherapy, that kind of psychotherapy, the, the therapists directing me to find my own healing as opposed to imposing interpretations on what I was saying that could have been used before, could have applied to someone else. But it was really, it was really that. I understood the transpersonal state to be facilitating, like an enzyme, but not the main reaction. So the effect of the MDMA helped to put you in that state, which then helped the therapy to be even more effective. I think for me, that's what I got out of it. Yes. And different people will get different things out of it. But for me, I understood that I didn't experience the kind of ecstasy or euphoria, but I did experience an enormous amount of safety and self-compassion and openness and, and, and then a willingness to go there, open that door that is usually shut. And most people think that if they can manage to shut a door on something unpleasant about themselves, as long as that door stays shut, it's all okay. Sometimes people, sometimes that door opens up and you get a glimpse and you don't like it. But I think most of us do believe that if we can keep that door locked shut, it'll be, it's all okay. We never really think to ourselves, what happens if we voluntarily unlock that door and just go inside for a bit? Uh, voluntarily, not because we have to or because we got forced to, but because we're feeling that it's okay to, that we're not afraid to. What happens then? And that was what it was like for me. And I understood that there's enormous value here. Now, 
I don't think you can make a whole life story out of one person's experience. And therefore, my experience notwithstanding, what's going to count are the data that come out of these studies. But at least I understand now what I'm studying. <laughs> and that is why I'm so profoundly grateful to be able to have the experience. I think it's an important part of therapy training. I wish that it was more broadly available. Yes, I hope it will be so in the future. And yeah. Dr. Yehuda, there's a question I ask every guest who I have the pleasure and privilege to speaking with on this podcast, and it is about the practice or practices that most profoundly affected their well-being, whether it's physically, mentally, or spiritually. Is there something that has been a part of your life that has elevated it? And would you be willing to share it with us? Before COVID, I would have said Bikram yoga was very important. I haven't been in a hot room in a long time. I believe that I walk every day in nature, but I walk quite a lot every day for a couple of hours. And for me, I'm a different person on the days that I can't do that. So I think movement is something that many of us don't make time for. But the idea of being able to move your body and maybe quiet down your mind a little, maybe experience yourself as a physical being. For someone like me who's thinking a lot <laughs> and writing a lot and talking a lot, for me, that has been a very healing experience. Thank you for sharing that. And people who would like to get in touch with you, what would be the best way of doing that? Yeah, you can uh, email me. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Rachel Yehuda. You could follow the center at as Psychedelics. I'm on LinkedIn. You can get me there. I'm on social media. It's very easy to find me and people should feel free to contact me. Well, excellent. Dr. Yehuda, I am so grateful you made time for us today. Fascinating conversation. I learned a lot and had a lot of new impulses for reframing certain things that I hadn't thought about before. Thank you very much for being my guest today. Dr. Yehuda, this was great. I'm going to stop the recording now. Thank you. This was really fantastic. Some really amazing insights. And again, just from a personal perspective, a lot of gratitude for what you've dedicated your life to and the things that you're embarking on now. This is really great. I, th I think I'd rather have just sound because I was fidgeting a lot because I just, I'm a fidgeter. So <laughs> let's, I understand. let's just make it sound. <laughs> is that okay? <laughs> also, the video quality wasn't that great in between, so it's totally okay. We'll make this audio. Okay, we'll make the audio work. You can cut some stuff out. I think a couple of questions were redundant, so you yeah. might want to shorten it. You can do that. I think the material in the beginning was weaker than the material towards the end. Yes, um, because when you ask me about trauma, I'm in my element. Mm -hmm. When you ask me about MDMA, as if I'm some sort of expert, I'm, I want to be very authentic. I am a new person here. And so I don't want to give this, I'm not Rick Doblin. I don't, I'm not going to give the lecture on why this is magic stuff. I'm personally, I'm obviously interested in it because I'm going to study it. But if you want to cut anything out, I think 
the stuff in the beginning you can think about yes. is be less good. And as we got talk, as we got rolling about trauma, I think this became a much better interview. Yes. I will also the my editor, the gentleman who takes care of all the cuts and editing, James, he's a wonderful human being. He's done a fantastic job. So he will also hear this part. And uh, yes, okay, we'll great. definitely look at so, that. And for the affiliation, just director of the center, professor at Mount Sinai is enough. It's enough. It's really okay. no more. It, I think less is more. <laughs> Yes, good. I just didn't. I just thought I'm getting the. I didn't realize. I didn't realize. I have to talk to my assistant about that. She needs to ask people what they, what they want these things for. Yeah, because some people would like all of their credentials in the introduction. I respect that. I will do. I not will, me. <laughs> I will write a new introduction. I'll send it so you can approve it. And once you like it, I'll re-record it, and that's the one we'll use. Does that sound? Thank good? you so much. Absolutely. Yes. My pleasure. I hope you have a great rest of your day, Dr. Yehuda. Thank you.